Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Recent events at several Utah schools have shown the danger, including the potential for violence and the misuse of social media. The Box Elder School District ordered a lockdown of all school activities for a short period of time last month after a threat of a shooting was made on Snapchat and similar incidents have occurred in the Salt Lake City area. We're going to talk about it on the program today. You're welcome to join the conversation with question or comment to by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Later in the program, we'll be talking with Avery Holton, chair of the communication department at the University of Utah. And uh, for this first half, uh, we bring in Jeremy Barnes, who is uh, public, uh, who is uh, the Utah Department of Public Safety School Safety Liaison. Uh, Jeremy Barnes, welcome to the program. Thank you. Appreciate you being on with us. Uh, so, give me an overview of what you've done in law enforcement, and then, uh, uh, and then maybe get in talking about uh, keeping schools safe. Of course, important work. What uh, what other work have you done? Well, I've been in uh, law enforcement for the last 16 years. Um, I've worked for multiple different agencies, uh, the last five of which, uh, almost six now, have been with the Utah Department of Public Safety. Um, Prior to the Utah Department of Public Safety, I was with the Draper City Police Department, where I got involved with school safety. Uh, In 2011, I became a D.A.R.E. officer, later a D.A.R.E. mentor who, who... whose responsibility is training uh, new D.A.R.E. officers. Uh, and then in 2013, I opened, uh, I was the first school resource officer when Corner Canyon High School opened there in Draper. Uh, and I had duties there um, in the high school as well as the middle school there in Draper City until they were able to get a fully staffed middle school SRO. So for the last few years, um, prior to um, this position, I was uh, an investigator of of misconduct investigator with the Utah Peace Officer Standards and Training through the Department of Public Safety. Um, and in tw- uh, general session 2019, House Bill 120 was enacted, and that created the School Safety Center. The School Safety Center is uh, through the Utah State Board of Education, and it's comprised of individuals um, from the Utah State Board of Education, but we also have three uh, liaisons from outside entities. One of the liaisons is from the Utah Division of Substance Abuse and Mental Health, uh, and that individual is a liaison for school-based mental health counseling and stuff like that. We have a liaison with Safe UT, which is uh, Utah's uh, safe reporting application, similar to a lot of other states that have uh, similar applications that can have anonymous tips, uh, crisis counseling, etc. And then my position with the Utah Department of Public Safety as a school safety liaison. So my position, I'm a sworn law enforcement officer. Um, however, I'm, I'm augmented out from the Department of Public Safety and serving with the Utah State Board of Education on that school safety center. And collaboratively, we work with um, local education agencies. We, we refer to them as LEAs throughout the state, which are, are the different school districts, different educational stakeholders um, throughout the state. And we work with them on situations involving school safety and security. Um, so, you know, you could have you could have anything from your active shooting threats, your digital safety threats, um, reviewing emergency response protocols, um, the pretty much uh, kind of runs, runs the board of, of what we do and, and what we can interact with with the, those LEAs. Of course, we're going to talk about uh, threats, especially social media. I guess uh, probably something to say at the beginning uh, is schools are generally safe, right? Uh, but uh, we have to be vigilant. Um, so, so um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, schools are schools are absolutely a safe place to be, um, and, and statistics show that. Even though we have these incidents throughout the nation uh, that would that would lead one to assume that, that schools aren't necessarily safe. Statistics overwhelmingly show that schools are safe places to be, um, and it's where, it's where students have those, those uh, social interactions with other individuals. They can have that. They can be provided with that safe learning environment. So, yeah, it is important to note that, that schools are safe. Uh, however, we do have situations that we need to address, to, and we can always do better. Um, and so when we're looking at situations involving school safety protocols and, and school security, we always want to strive to do better. We always want to be better um, 
and improving that that safe climate for all members of the school community, not just students, but staff members, faculty, administrators, et cetera. So we're going to talk about social media, and uh, of course, use of social media has skyrocketed among the young people over the last well, what you know decade or something. Um, really, a place where young people congregate more than older folks like me, uh, and and you know, a lot of the things can be positive, right? And 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 some of the fun things are innocuous. Uh, I'm reading about a dry scoop challenge where uh, people are uh, consume pre-workout powder without mixing it with water. So, you know, okay, you know, kind of daring people, right? But but this can uh, turn at least to threats of violence, and that's what we've seen in several schools recently. Yes. So it's important to, social media is out there. Social media is not going anywhere. Social media is um, not going to necessarily change. We have to navigate that new climate, that new platform, um, and, and it's ever-evolving. I mean, it used to be MySpace, and then, and then MySpace was um, replaced with Facebook. And now we've got all sorts of social media platforms that are out there. Facebook, uh, Instagram uh, are, are kind of mainstream, but then we've, we've got the, the Snapchat, and we've got the TikToks, and we've got all kinds of, of uh, applications that are out there that are widely being used by not only, as you stated, uh, adults, but obviously the, the young people that are out there. And, and navigating that social atmosphere, that social climate, is, is kind of complicated. Um, but the same dangers that would exist in person with, with say, bullying um, and, and violence and, and threats of violence and stuff like that, they're, they're still going to exist on the social media platforms. Uh, and so it's, it's identifying those, those risks, and, and navigating those that climate, and we have seen in in recent weeks, recent months, um, we have seen situations where threats have been made involving involving schools or students within schools, um, and and so you are correct on that. I, I think most notably um, was was probably last month on the national scale where we had the. Um, the TikTok challenge of, of the school shooting challenge, um, and and that affected schools throughout the nation, um, and lo- both locally and nationally. Do these generally? I guess it's case by case. But these generally, I, some of them would be, I don't know, uh, attempts at humor gone horribly wrong, or at, you know, kind of the intentions not malevolent. I guess all the way to perhaps male- malevolent intent. So you've got to parse that out, right? Uh, you're quoted, I want to read this uh, quote I found from you. Um, let's see. You say, we can't overreact about a situation, and we can't underreact about a situation. So <laughs> that's hard. you got to thread the needle every time. Yeah, and, and, and you bring up a really good point. And, and yes, that, that was uh, a quote stated by me recently regarding the specific threats that we're referring to you you can't overreact about something but you can't sit there and say well it's just it's just kids being kids nothing's going to happen you have to look at everything on an independent uh basis every every individual incident needs to be evaluated on a case-by-case basis and at the the utah state board of education specifically the the utah school safety center we're really um we put a lot of focus on threat assessment uh, multidisciplinary teams within a school. So when I refer to a multidisciplinary team, you're going to have a team that is made up of of different specializations within the school, that people coming from different areas of expertise, different backgrounds, and they make up this multidisciplinary team. You can have a school administrator serving on this team. You can have a, a school resource officer, so that law enforcement aspect. You can have school-based mental health uh, counselors. You can have social workers. Uh, school nurses can also serve on these boards or not, not boards, but um, teams. And what they do is when, when a threat comes into a school, and whether it comes in directly from a student, whether it's uh, something that was overheard, um, a, a teacher overhearing a conversation or seeing a drawing or seeing, seeing a, a diary of, of threats, what appear to be threats, um, something that, that looks threatening in nature, they're able to report this, this threat to the multidisciplinary team, and the multidisciplinary team is then able to, to take a step back, look at it from, from all different all their different areas of expertise, their different backgrounds, and say, okay, one, is this a threat? 
do we have a threat? If we do have a threat, is it what we call transient, meaning is it, is it a threat, but it was made in a figure of speech? Um, is, it, is it an empty threat? And they have to investigate, they have to really look into the different aspects of that. We'll use an example of, um, say, a second grader um, saying that they're, they're going to shoot somebody. Well, does that second grader have the, the capability, the culpability, and the mental awareness and, and faculties to carry out that threat? Well, if they are unable to say the student isn't around guns, they don't have any access to guns, mom and dad don't have any guns, there's no weapons, that individual being a second grader probably doesn't have the capability to carry out that threat. Is it a figure of speech? Are they angry? Are they, they, um, are they blowing off steam? And, and you have to look at that individually. Is the threat there? Yeah, a threat was made. A specific threat was made. That being said, they don't have the capability to carry it out, so it would be what we refer to as transient. After that, we have what's, what we refer to as substantive threats. There are threats that there's substance behind them. They have the capability. They, they have the intent to carry it out, whatever the case may be. And then we have very serious substantive threats, and that's where we have uh, weapons involved, we know that they have access to weapons. Um, we can articulate some level that takes it into that very serious threat category. And on the law enforcement perspective, it would be kind of the equivalent of going from your simple assault to an aggravated assault. So it goes from a simple assault, pushing, shoving, using fists, physical violence, to that aggravated assault when you're talking about serious bodily injury or death to another individual using a weapon. Uh, and, and so that's where it escalates, and it's kind of the same thing going from the substantive threat to a very serious substantive threat. And these multidisciplinary teams look at each threat that comes in individually um, and look at that, that case-by-case situation. And so it is important that we don't overreact to a situation, but we also don't underreact. We have to look at each individual threat that comes in as its own independent threat and evaluate the substance of it from that point. Are these particularly hard to investigate? Uh, I mean, social media, so I guess you got an electronic trail, but uh, some of these platforms can be, uh, present some difficulties. Are these, uh, how are these to investigate? So they do, you, you are correct, they, they, do, uh, they do present with, with some difficulties, uh, trying to identify who, who the individuals may be with these anonymous threats. Um, that, is, that is in the case if it's an anonymous post, if it's an anonymous threat. Um, I'll, use, I'll use an example, um, uh, kind of a hypothetical. If you have a, an anonymous poster that comes in on social media, um, say Twitter, and they, they say they post a threat, and it's anonymous. Well, that threat could be shared by multiple individuals. So you could go to those individuals who are sharing it or reposting it and try to figure out what, they, what knowledge they have of it. Um, ultimately, on the pathway to violence, there is uh, what, what we call leakage. And when somebody is experiencing the pathway to violence, uh, in, in many cases, they are, they are providing leakage. So it's coming out somewhere. Is it, is it coming out through friends? Is it coming out through um, posts? online posts, um, they, are, they are giving information away that would help investigators look into that. It's just identifying what that leakage is and where the sources are coming from. Um, law enforcement investigators have resources available to them um, that they are able to, that are able to assist them in these investigations. Um, and and having, having an understanding of digital, th- digital threat assessment and what's out there, um, I there's there's a uh, you know, 40 hour trainings that are available to people for digital threat assessment and how to how to navigate that and, and help with investigating those cases. I think the best thing that, that I could say on that would be that the resources are available for investigators, but it really comes back to people monitoring their social medias uh, as well as parents monitoring what what their what social media their kids are involved in. Um, and if the, anything is is out of the ordinary, if anything seems not usual, um, threatening in any way, report it. Report it to somebody. It can be reported to law enforcement. It can be reported to school administration. It could be reported to counselors. Uh, it can be reported through SafeUT. And SafeUT is, is as I, I said, it's our safe reporting app. 
but it is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, staffed by by clinicians um, that are able to to take these these threats or take these conversations as they're coming in. And it could be situations, it could be a, a threat of, of violence to the school or, or another student, but it could also be students having a time of crisis that they could use the Safe UT reporting app to reach out and help somebody navigate through navigate them through the, their times of crisis. Um, and, and those are, it's important to know that Safe UT is available. Um, Safe UT is also available for any, any drug tips within the school. Anything that would impact that school safety, the safe school climate or the safe school culture, Safe UT is available uh, for anybody who wants to get on and make a make a tip and that can be done anonymously or it could could be done um without being anonymous um and and that is one of the huge resources that's available to to anyone in the state so safeut.org i believe right place to go uh it's the safeut app the safeut app Uh, okay yeah it's the safeut app can be downloaded as far as the actual website um let me see if I can pull that up really quick. And yes, it is safeut.org. <laughs> okay, so safeut uh, app would be uh, a good thing to, to download. Um, I want to ask you about parents monitoring their kids' social media. What, what advice would you give? Uh, kids, in most cases, are a lot more advanced and a lot more knowledge about social media than their parents. So how, how, how can parents uh, catch up and, and monitor effectively? Well, it, it's it's really a changing landscape. Um, you know, I, I was in a training recently where where one of the speakers actually said, um, you know, the, the students are the experts. Uh, the parents want to be the experts, and the parents want to maintain that control, but the students are the experts. They are the, the social media experts in the school, and, and so if you have questions about it, ask your kids. Keep that open line of communication with your kids going. Um, continue to have those positive interventions with them, and and be able to have some access control over their their phones, over their their computers, and, and know what they're doing. Um, it's difficult to sit here. Um, I, I am a parent. Um, I am in law enforcement, and I, I understand the complexities and the difficulties of parenting in this in this new age. That being said keeping that line of communication open, being able to have that uh, two-way conversation with your, with your kids is, is hugely paramount. Um, and anything that can be done to encourage that and, and to have that, that open line stay open um, to, continue the, to continue that progress forward. And just being, trying to understand what's out there as far as social media. Um, I know that, that local news outlets, as far as... Uh, I saw one locally um, recently about different emojis and the the, the complexities and the meanings of, of uh, different emojis for drug trade. Um, keeping up with stories like that and really kind of having that understanding, but also just kind of following what the trends are on on uh, social media yourself. It, it does take a little bit of legwork, um, but trying to stay up to speed as much as possible, I, I would I would always encourage parents to do. The uh, consequences can can be you know fairly severe for kids who uh, who, uh, who who make a threat. Maybe the motivation uh, isn't completely malevolent. Maybe it is, but um, you know consequences can be fairly serious. I wonder if that I wonder if that even enters into thinking of a lot of kids. You know, kids can be pretty impulsive. I wonder uh, deterrent. Uh, do you think that has an effect? Well, it, it's kind of hard to say. I mean, you, you hit it on the head there with, with kids can be impulsive. Um, you know, that, that decision-making part of our brain isn't fully developed uh, until we're into our 20s. Um, and with that being said, some of the, the some of the individuals, some of the students kind of don't think about those long-term consequences. They do. They are that short-term thinking. They are impulse thinking. Um, and when they make decisions, whether they're posting something, whether they're putting something out there, whether they're threatening someone, making a threat, um, there are there. Once, once it's on social media, it's out there. It doesn't go away. Um, we see in today's day and age, we can see how things that were posted by celebrities even uh, years ago can come back and haunt them as as they're in the spotlight more. Um, there's there's individuals, political figures that have been hurt or harmed um, 
in the in the public scope because of something that they posted years ago. Um, we're always under scrutiny. Is, uh, our social media platforms are, can always be under scrutiny, and so it doesn't go away. Um, everything is always out there. It can always be looked up. It can always be recovered. And I think that's one thing to really impress upon with kids is once it's out there, it's out there. It may be you may be blowing off steam or you may be trying to get a laugh, but once it's out there, it's out there. And some of these some of these situations, some of these posts do have those long term consequences. Um, when you're making threats of violence, when you're impacting critical infrastructure such as uh, the normal functioning of a school, there's going to be legal consequences. Um, law enforcement is is looking into every school threat as an actual threat, and they're they're proceeding with their investigations. It's going to be up up to the collaboration between the the school district and the law enforcement, as well as as whatever um, county attorney or district attorney level uh, juvenile court authority to see what those consequences will be. However, law enforcement's not going to uh, refrain from investigating a threat. Uh, because somebody, you know, was making a joke, they're still going to proceed with the investigation. They're still going to proceed with their job uh, because they're they're charged with ensuring that that safe school climate, and the school is going to do the same thing. I'm wondering uh, overall trends. I don't know if you have data, but uh, of course we're talking about this right now because there's a, there's been a you know several of these instances pop up. But uh, overall trends is is this increasing? I don't know. I'm not aware. I'm not aware of specific uh, data. Uh, well, I wouldn't be able to quote specific data, um, but the the social media landscape is changing, and I, I am comfortable stating that. Yeah, yeah, certainly, uh, certainly very true. Uh, we we uh, just have a minute or two left uh, here in this segment, um, and, and so I'm wondering what what you you would say. What's what's the big takeaway you would you would hope that kids and parents, especially, take away from this discussion? You know, as we're navigating this new, this new world, so to speak, with with social media, and it's ever changing. Um, we're coming. We're, we're still dealing in the middle of a pandemic. Um, having kids have an outlet. Talk to your parents. Parents, be able to talk to your kids. Have that open line of communication. Understand where you were at that age, and understand that the difficulties that are facing them today are not the same difficulties that you encountered. However, the feelings are the same. We can navigate those and we can talk through those feelings because those are similar. The feelings that we felt back in the 90s and the 80s as we were going through school are the same feelings that kids are feeling today. It's the platform is entirely different. Know what's going on in your kids' lives. Stay involved. Also be aware of of what they're doing on social media. Stay involved with that. If you see something unusual, say something. Report it to anyone. Report it to school administrators, law enforcement, safe UT. Um, and it's important that I, I think that's the biggest takeaway. If you see something concerning, say something. It, too often we, we go in silence and we figure that it's somebody else's problem or that somebody else will report it, and it doesn't get reported. If you see something unusual, you feel that it's out of the normal, you feel that it's unsafe, say something. And uh, you can report it to uh, to Safe Utah, right? To Safe UT. So Safe UT uh, app is something to download and use. Uh, yeah. We we've been talking with uh, Jeremy Barnes, who's the uh, school safety liaison with the Utah Department of Public Safety, and uh, he has joined us uh, in this part of the program. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. After a break, we'll continue this discussion with Avery Holton, who's chair of the Communication Department at the University of Utah. He studies uh, social media and its use uh, by young people. We'll have uh, more following this break. Coverage of the 2022 Utah Legislature is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Women and Leadership Project at Utah State University, working to move mountains for Utah girls and women through research, resources, and events. Information is available at utwomen.com. Did you know that the words lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender are used very infrequently, if at all, in state social studies guidelines across the nation? The exclusion of LGBTQ individuals, issues, and social movements in social studies teaching guidelines has significant implications for students who identify as LGBTQ or other marginalized groups. 
researchers in social studies education are working to create more inclusive standards to contribute to a learning atmosphere where all voices and perspectives are valued. Inclusive guidelines support curriculum and instruction that benefits students' physical, mental, and academic health. This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services, committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, and we're talking about uh, social media trends among uh, kids in school, and especially uh, when the trends get violent, or at least with threats of violence. We've had uh, several incidents at Utah schools recently. I've shown the danger, including potential for violence and the misuse of social media. Uh, for example, Box Elder School District ordered a lockdown of all school activities for a short period of time last month after a threat of a shooting was made on Snapchat. Uh, similar incidents have occurred in uh, Salt Lake Area schools. Um, and uh, we talked earlier in the program with Jeremy Barnes, who's uh, school safety liaison with Utah Department of Public Safety. Uh, he uh, is among those charged with uh, assessing these threats. Uh, how serious are they? And then responding. We turn now to a conversation with Avery Holton, who's chair of the communication department at the University of Utah. Avery Holton, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate you uh, being on with us here. Um, so you're quoted as saying um, that uh, our response needs to be nuanced. Uh, this doesn't have one-size-fits-all solution. And that for generations of students, they were born into technology um, in a way that uh, you know people of older generations, uh, we just can't fully, completely understand. Uh, I wonder if you talk a little bit about that. About that. Yeah, it's tough, right, when we have technology that maybe we weren't born into, um, but our kids or younger generations were to understand what they're going through or what they face or even how they socialize sometimes on those platforms. Um, and, and that's never been more important than now when kids are still facing, to some degree, uh, quarantine or lockdown to keep them socially isolated. So they have uh, technology and platforms and apps and games to turn to. And a lot of those are really helpful in, in socializing, right? Still staying connected with friends, making new friends, um, having fun with different things on, on TikTok and Snapchat and Facebook and Twitch and, and those sorts of things. But they also come with their own level of, of danger and threat. And we're seeing that crop up more as students uh, and folks of younger ages come out of quarantine and almost in some cases have to learn to, to re-socialize, right? We have kids in, in some age groups that have been on lockdown uh, for two years, going on two years. So imagine that if for two years your primary source of socialization um, at a really important age was just in a digital environment, how do you transfer that over into the real world and how do you, how do you really gauge what impact your actions will have when you move from a digital somewhat disconnected a world into the real world, so to speak. I wonder if you could expand on that. That's a very interesting point. Um, I hadn't really focused on that, the, the fact that, you know, uh, kids are coming out of lockdown, they're coming out of less socialization, um, and relying on social media maybe even more than they had uh, previously. Right, exactly. So moving in again into uh, lockdown, you know, there was a huge up uptick in use of particular platforms, TikTok being one of those. And um, again, it, it comes with its own form of good socialization, um, not only keeping kids uh, occupied, but giving them a chance to connect with each other and to see a bit more of the world outside of them, but also to potentially um, engage in digital spaces that don't feel quite real or don't come with the same um, punitive consequences you know, taking action in a digital space indeed can be hurtful, and, and there are a lot of uh, negative consequences to bad actions there. But when you position those in the real world, uh, there can be some confusion for uh, kiddos and young adults, you know, coming out of those digital spaces. And there can also be a quick realization that, wow, th this has real impact. This isn't just uh, I'm going to make a comment on social media and leave it and never really understand the consequences of that. This is in-your-face consequence 
that happens. And we're seeing a lot of folks that are on the front lines of working with kiddos, particularly in schools, dealing with this now and, and wrestling with it and uh, trying to stay ahead of what is a constantly changing game when it comes to apps and, and social media trends. And of course, uh, a kid says something uh, might be out of jest, just a, a horribly mistimed joke, or it c- could be you know something that not meant with malevolence. Um, uh, but of course, school officials have to take these uh, very seriously. Right, exactly, and it is really difficult to convey um, different emotions and different intentions through social media, uh, jokes in particular, sarcasm things that are meant to be playful or um, not with consequence, those are really tough to gauge, particularly among younger ages. And schools are faced now with, as you, you said, taking everything seriously and using an abundance of caution, at whether, as you said, it, it's a quick one-off comment or it's a string of comments or even in, in the cases that we're seeing more and more of with TikTok challenges, actual action happening. Schools uh, have to be aware of the trends that are there. Parents have to be aware of of those trends as well and to understand uh, their significance, what they mean, and whether or not there's something that's harmless or even in some cases fun or if they're dangerous to an individual student, to their group of friends, or to an entire school population. Some of these are not threats of violence. I'm reading, for example, uh, uh, about something called the Devious Lick TikTok Challenge, where uh, uh, you you steal something, right, or you vandalize. These are serious things, but it's not threats of violence. Um, So it's a a spectrum. Uh, So I guess my question here is, why do kids uh, do this? Why why do a lot of kids feel like I, I need to or I want to take up this challenge? Yeah, it's such a great question, and it's a difficult one to answer because every kid is different and unique, right? And so, you know, one of the things that we can do, whether it's as parents or or friends or as educators, is to try and understand each individual where they're at. But in terms of, you know, broad rationales, a lot of the same reasons that we see kids do things um, even when they're together, right? So if we think of elementary or secondary uh, level kiddos, trying to learn with and, and from one another looking at one another and what they're doing, trying to fit in, um, trying to to be popular or to stand out from the crowd in some cases. And these trends offer a way to stay connected, to be seen, right, in a digital space, to be part of something, whether it's through a hashtag or through actual action, and in a lot of cases to, to create something, to create an identity. So it's a space, again, over the last two years, where kids that are at uh, particularly susceptible ages or that are going through changes or trying to find themselves find comfort and find home, whether it's with a crowd that they connect with or through trying to go viral and and trying to set themselves apart in many cases. And as you said, uh, most of these trends are either uh, fun and related to dances or or games. Um, Some get a little bit more devious. Um, a lot of the trends last year involved, you know, licking toilet seats or uh, small level graffiti or stealing small items. Um, and those wind up opening a, a floodgate to um, bigger acts. And in, in some cases, unfortunately, either violent acts or acts that do harm to, to individuals, right? We saw the, the powder challenge. Um, we saw that the baby seat or swing challenge where kids were getting stuck in and had to be cut out of seats. Mm-hmm. All of these things point back to um, a, a sense of belongingness and a sense of finding identity that, uh, again, we as parents and educators have to pay attention to and, and look for the signs of and also be willing to engage and talk with uh, kiddos about. And uh, I guess lest we adults uh, feel smug about this, especially powerful, this uh, this uh, desire to fit in when you're an adolescent, right? But uh, that does continue <laughs> into adulthood, doesn't it? Uh, you know, following trends <laughs> yes. and wanting to fit in. Yes, and it's one of the big reasons a lot of us use social media, right? It's to uh, either show off the best sides of ourselves. It's rare that, that we show um, the good and then the bad and the ugly. It's typically just the good. But it's also a, a space to um, see what's out there, to, to gauge the world, 
to see what we like, who we might fit in with, and who we might connect with. And for, you know, younger kids, adolescents, teenagers who are looking for that and, and looking for identity, um, and in some cases feeling left out and looking for more extreme ways of fitting in, we have to be able to look at, as adults, these platforms and not dismiss them and, and not dismiss those are you, who are using them and just instead see that this is part of their reality um, and it should be part of our reality. And the only way that we can get there is by trying to understand not only how and why we use or don't use these platforms ourselves, but also how and why uh, our kiddos and younger generations are using them and experiencing them. And, and we've done a decent job of that with seeing them as spaces where things like bullying might take place and, and what those look like on Facebook and other chat boards and chat apps. But now we have to pay attention to this emergence you know, trend of following one another, not only in just digital action, but in real-life action, too. Why are kids choosing to do this? Why are teenagers choosing to do this? And what can we do about it? And the only way to, to truly understand that as an individual is to engage and to be open about it without coming, without coming at it as something that uh, is always going to be negative or dangerous or ignoring it, but instead seeing it for, for what it is and trying to have open conversations with everyone around us so that we, we understand better and that we're prepared for these moments when there is a, a negative trend that's going viral or we see a kiddo um, or even our own kiddo maybe taking part in something that isn't great for their lives. Um, we have to be positioned to have a, a real conversation about that. So how best to engage when I'm sure that uh, many in our audience be like me? Uh, uh, Snapchat, TikTok, those are foreign lands uh, to me. So as a parent, uh, should, should I be on there so I can engage with my kids? Yeah, it's a personal, personal question, right? And, and it's one that everybody has to tackle on their own. Um, I would always say that it doesn't hurt to uh, educate and experience. And one of the best ways that we can understand digital platforms is, is by being on them. Even if we're not posting or engaging um, and we're, we're more what you might call lurkers or voyeurs in those spaces where we're checking out what's going on. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. So more than half of TikTok users don't post any content. Um, they might post one uh, video piece of content or, or one digital content piece, but nothing beyond that. So they're in the space seeing what everybody else does. So it's a good idea to, to sign up for those um, if you're willing and if you're able to make that personal choice, not necessarily to um, – stalk a kiddo or make them feel like uh, we're a helicopter parent or hovering, but so that we know what's going on. And so that when we hear about a, a trend, that we can immediately go to that and see what's happening with it and understand the context of it. Because there's a, there's a big difference between learning about a trend through a school notice or hearing about it on the news or hearing from it, uh, hearing from a friend about it versus actually being able, being able to hop on and see it and to experience it and to know um, in the cases of making choices for, for kiddos and young adults what they're going through and how they might be experiencing it. And the other thing I would say is even if you, you aren't um, comfortable being on a platform, maybe be comfortable having conversations about what's happening on those platforms, right? Talking with kids from an early age, about the consequences, uh, good and bad, of being on these platforms, what, what they're doing, what they're seeing, and being open to some really hard conversations at times, right? Because younger generations are faced with more information and more open information than any other generation b before us, right? And again, that includes the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I, I don't think we want to be in a position where we're, we're constantly on the defense or constantly punishing but instead want to have open conversations and to, to recognize and help our, our kids recognize there are consequences to actions in digital spaces. I want to take that up uh, just a moment, but I want to follow up. Um, I, I would imagine one of the impulses or one of the beneficial outcomes for kids uh, uh, on being on a platform that their parents really aren't familiar with 
is this natural separation that adolescents want, right? That it's, it's a time of seeking their independence. That's what, you know, in former times, that's what slang was for. The, kid, the parents can understand what the kids are saying because they're using slang. Um, I wonder how parents navigate that because this is a natural impulse. Kids, kids want to have some independence, and if you're on a foreign platform to your parents, so that can provide that. Yeah, great, great point. And we all have different parenting techniques, right? So this isn't to say um, one approach is better than the other, but rather to say, um, you know, we, we do want to give kids freedoms and space to learn and grow and, and make mistakes and have their own successes and celebrations as well. And there's a really good chance that a lot of that learning will come well beyond whatever window we can see through, right? Um, and, and there might be some good to that, and there also might be some, some scary component to that letting go and, and not necessarily knowing what's going on. But that doesn't mean um, that we have to do so blindly, right? So being engaged, understanding these platforms, um, and then parents can make a decision. Do I follow my kid or not? Do I set up parental controls or not? Or if I have parental controls set up, at, at what age do I decide to let go a little bit or to loosen those reins? Um, a lot of parents now are faced with handing over digital technology, whether it's um, cell phones or gab watches or whatever it might be, at, at really early ages, right? We're seeing those ages dip down um, into the single digits, six, seven, eight years old. What kind of control will I have at that age versus 12 or 16? And how do I do so in a way that, that lets my kiddo explore not only those platforms, but themselves, as you alluded to, letting them find themselves and their friends and their identities in a really healthy way. And, and I use the analogy sometimes from when I was a kiddo. It's, it's sort of like mom and dad uh, letting me ride my bike around the driveway and then down the street and then down the block and, and finally, you know, a half mile or a mile down to the store. Um, we get comfortable and we start to uh, respect and learn from one another as, as parents and as kiddos. Uh, what works, what are our boundaries, what will help our, our kids flourish and grow in these spaces? Because, again, they're born into them. This is part of their reality. And for a lot of us, if we're 30 years old or, or older, we're still navigating these spaces as they pop up and, and learning them, whereas kids learn them in a, in a matter of minutes. Mm -hmm. And so we have to challenge ourselves um, to, to understand ourselves and what we're comfortable with as parents but also how we see our kids in these spaces and how we see them growing and, and flourishing in these spaces and with other kids around them that are they're in the same shared environments. You mentioned um, that it might be beneficial to uh, just alert kids to potential consequences of certain actions on social media uh, that, that perhaps could be a deterrent, could be helpful. Yeah, definitely. And it's worth asking. And you do risk some exposure, right? So if we ask a kiddo, um, what do you think of the powder challenge? Or have you seen this? And they haven't, then we do run the risk of them, you know, immediately going home and checking that out and seeing what it's about. But if we ask our kiddos, hey, what's going on? Or we have a weekly check-in, right? Whether it's at dinner or before bed, um, sort of a weekly download, how are things going? Um, what new things are you seeing or learning on TikTok or on Twitch or on YouTube TV or IGTV? One, we, we allow ourselves to learn where our kids are, right, um, what spaces they're really in. And two, we, we get a little bit of a window. That doesn't mean our kids are always going to tell us every single thing or, or even that it's healthy to push them to. But we open ourselves up for a conversation with them. And I think if we do that early on, you know, starting at an early age, have healthy conversations and have healthy responses when our kiddos make mistakes in those spaces, then it sets us up later down the road for them to feel comfortable telling us, hey, somebody's bullying me in this space. Or, hey, I, I saw this negative trend and I thought about doing it because my friend was doing it. It gives them the opportunity to have voice and to trust us as parents or even as educators to have conversations. And, and that's why I think it's healthy to have a, a time set aside to have conversations like that um, and even to have those set up in schools, right, whether it's a specific period set up for that or just having teachers and counselors uh, set up to help handle those things. We have to give um, 
trust and freedom at the same time to kiddos and open spaces where it, it really does feel comfortable over a lifetime to talk about these things. I'm reading another suggestion that you've made, um, incorporating social media literacy classes into school curriculum. I am. That, I, I think it's an absolute uh, a paradigm for schools to either consider having, or in many cases, they already do have, right? And we've seen this integrated by a lot of great educators, particularly at the elementary and junior high levels, um, bringing in different platforms early on and apps, um, healthy apps and successful apps for students to work with them. So they have an outlet for that. They're learning what, um, you know, good play or good education looks like in these spaces. And then uh, teachers and educators themselves that I have to applaud for, for doing these things, educating themselves and understanding the difference of healthy use of digital media and negative use and, and opening up to conversations about that. And we see a lot of educators now, again, at those um, levels of K through five or six on TikTok and inviting their students into those platforms through exercises or games and sharing those so kids feel comfortable in those spaces and, and learn to navigate them. But I think we have to go a step further. And a lot of schools are starting to do this or at least to consider doing this. And having periods that we used to allocate um, as, as sort of open periods or uh, resource periods and having conversations there, allowing uh, teachers and educators to have conversations with kiddos about these platforms and to understand what's going on. And there's been some pushback to this, this trend um, because there are questions of expertise. Well, what makes an expert in digital media? What makes an expert in talking to our kids about TikTok? And it, it's not a matter of expertise necessarily. It's a matter of providing a platform for kids to connect with one another in a physical space and to talk about these things and to understand the ins and outs, to understand and to um, use prevention, not just palliative care when it comes to digital media and some of the negative consequences of that. And I, I should say here, too, I don't think we want to place this entire onus on school counselors. I mean, this is a time that school counselors often are one or two among hundreds and hundreds of students. Um, and I think schools themselves, they can devote time to helping um, train or offer training to uh, educators, not to overload educators who are already feeling overloaded and, and anxious with work schedules, but to give them opportunities to learn and engage so that they can take that back to the classroom and talk with their students and have conversations. So it has to be a more holistic approach where anybody who wants to be or can be involved is. Just to have a couple minutes left to wonder um, what your bottom line advice to parents and school administrators would be on this. Yeah, I, I think broadly be aware, right? Be aware and be engaged. And we're already seeing schools, particularly in, in Utah and across this, this region, being more aware, being more engaged, and being reflective. You know, own, owning up when uh, responses aren't where they should be and wanting to do better and, and wanting to improve and to do so in ways that aren't just palliative, meaning we're not just waiting on the next negative trend or the next bad thing to happen, but they're being proactive and engaging in spaces and asking questions of students and involving students in conversations so that we learn with and, and for them. As educators, that, that can be tough. Because at the end of the day, these kids go off back out into the world. The same applies for parents. You know, at the start of the day, um, we, we see our kids go off at, you know, 7, 8, 9 in the morning and come back to us, and they're experiencing a different world. Or when they go to their room, they're, they're in a different world. And one of the best things we can do for our kids um, as adults is to be aware, to be engaged, and to challenge ourselves to have conversations even if they're hard and even if they're difficult with our kids and with other adults about what's going on in these spaces so that we know the good that's there and we encourage that. We know and are aware of and, and not turning a blind eye to the negative that's there. And we have a conversation about that so that we're better prepared with and for our, our kids and the, the younger folks around us when there is something negative that, that happens to have a conversation that for them 
doesn't always feel like punishment and instead feels like an opportunity to learn and to grow. We will uh, leave it there when the end of the program. Avery Holton, chair of the communication department at the University of Utah, has joined us in this part of the program. We've been talking about uh, use of social media among uh, young people, especially uh, dangerous trends. Uh, and uh, we appreciate you, uh, Avery Holton, being with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for giving this uh, the time and the voice it deserves. Thank you. And as always, on Wednesdays, we go out with the Beehive Archive. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. Located along the Utah-Idaho border, the Bear River is the source of life for northwestern Shoshone people. They know it as Boa Ogai, and for hundreds of years, winter spent along its edge offered respite and rejuvenation. Learn more after this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. The Northwestern Band of the Shoshone Nation traveled to specific areas across the Mountain West to harvest resources offered by the changing seasons. They called the Earth their mother, and she provided all they needed. They understood the delicate balance of living with nature and the pivotal roles played by the sky, earth, and water. Winter was a time of physical and spiritual rejuvenation, a respite after the long hunting and gathering seasons. Each year, the Northwestern Band returned to the same location on the shores of Boa Ogai, or Big River, to spend their winter months. Lush grasses drew game, and nearby hot springs gave warmth. The landscape formed a gully that sheltered their winter camp from wind and snow. This natural weather barrier, plus adequate fuel, ensured cozy teepees and content people. Often called the Elder's Time, winter at Boa Agai was the season to share stories and wisdom passed down from one generation to the next. The Northwestern Band of the Shoshone called their winter camp Mosonkani, meaning home of the lungs, because of the sponge-like rocks in the steaming hot spring along the riverbank. Its central location amid Shoshone lands meant that Mosonkani became the gathering place for different bands to hold meetings, compete in winter sports, and enjoy themselves. They played shinny, a game similar to hockey, as well as raced, danced, and used dried deer hides as sleds. The Shoshone camp at Mosonkani hosted other bands from around the Mountain West for annual warm dance celebrations that drove out the cold of winter and hastened the warmth of spring. This gathering was a time to share news, visit relatives, and even arrange marriages. But the last warm dance at Mosonkani was held in early January of 1863. Later that month, the way of life Shoshone people had known for hundreds of years was utterly upended. The U.S. Army attacked the camp, resulting in the deadliest massacre of Native peoples by federal troops in the American West. The Shoshone would not spend another winter on the banks of Boa Ogai. This episode of the Beehive Archive was contributed by the Hiram City Museum. Find sources and past episodes at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss. Spanish-language programming on Utah Public Radio is supported by the USU Office of Global Engagement, fostering diversity, inclusion, and cultural awareness by supporting international students and scholars and facilitating study abroad opportunities. Information at globalengagement.usu.edu. Living on Earth is next. That's followed by Climate One at 11 o'clock. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan.